as we continue in this study, we continue with um, this study of the upside-down kingdom. And uh, we have a piece of art that was created by Beth Mark's mom, Kathy. Have we got that this week? Yeah. Let's take a look at that for a moment. Let me tell you why I love that painting. We talk about not judging others. She painted this painting because you see that man, and maybe he represents something that we see on the street all the time, somebody we see hanging out in front of the Walgreens, somebody we see asking us for help. And what do you think when you see that man? What do you think about? Do you start sizing him up? That's what somebody said in personal worship this week in our staff meeting. They said, you know, um, what I do is I start sizing up a person and creating a story about them without knowing anything. Well, let me very simply say what Jesus says to do with that picture. He says, do not see in that man all of his faults and inadequacies. See in that man yourself. Worry about yourself. Let God worry about everybody else. Worry about you not creating stumbling blocks. And let God worry about the, worry about the rest. So that's the journey we enter into today. Hear this word. This is from Jesus. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me get, take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you seeking your wisdom from your word, and I pray one simple thing for myself and for all of us, that we would all resist the urge to think of others that we would all focus on and see that log in our own eye and just worry about that and let you handle the rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That is a great prayer. So this week, just like kind of as an experiment, I Googled the words the Bible says not to, and then this is what came up. Uh, And then because I'm technologically challenged and I don't know how to screenshot something on my computer, I I took a picture of it on my phone. (laughs) And I sent it to these guys, and they're like, really? You know, that's the best you can do. Uh, The good news is that in the next couple of weeks, this wall is going to become our projection system, and we're going to have like NASA-rated projectors, and so even my crummy pictures are going to be a lot clearer. But if you can't see what it says, and you know, maybe you're in the back or something, uh, it talks a lot about food, right? I mean, you know, the Bible says don't eat pork, don't eat shrimp, don't eat meat. That's a catch-all. Don't eat shellfish. 
I mean, if you don't know what the Bible actually has to say about these things, that causes a moderate amount of panic, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you look at that and you think to yourself, well, good grief, what's left? <laughs> Unless you're a vegetarian, right? So, so here's the deal. If you're one of my vegetarian friends... And I hope that you have good humor about your vegetarian, first of all, because I don't, you know, I love my vegetarian friends. It's sort of like when I talk about people who love cats as opposed to dogs. Okay, guys, you, you need to know that I am totally kidding. Okay? It's like a total joke. And my poor wife freaks out every time. I, I told her I'm going to do this tomorrow. And she's like, oh, you know, Tom, these people love their cats. I said, I know. That's why we have counselors. Like a whole industry devoted to these people. It's amazing. It's good for the economy. So when I say if there's no meat in the menu, what's left? What are all the vegetarians tempted to do? They're tempted to judge me, which is ironic, which is ironic given what we're actually going to talk about today. So, but, but the reason for that, and I do understand this, is that what they know is that there's a super diverse menu available to vegetarians. It's amazing, guys. I don't know if you've been to the restaurants, but it's like super creative. It's super diverse. It's really, really good, like seriously delicious food, okay? But if it doesn't include meat, I'm kind of out, you know? And I don't mean that as an offense. I'm just, I'm out. And, and I say that as a guy who has had several veggie burgers. So it's not like I haven't tried, the first veggie burger I ever had, I had with one of our elders, maybe he's here, his name's Dave Fee, he's a great friend of mine, and we had a lunch schedule, so he called me and he goes, Tom, I'm going to pick you up, very assertive, he's the executive, you know, he's like, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you to a new place, we're going to go to Green Bar, it's off 17th Street, and we are, he tells me what I'm going to get, we're both going to get a veggie burger, and I said, Dave, that's the dumbest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about two words that don't belong together, right? Like veggie, which I've been told all my life I have to eat, and burger, which I'm trying not to eat so many of. I mean, it's like there's a reason why Burger King calls their veggie burger the impossible whopper. Because it's impossible to believe somebody's going to buy one of those things, isn't it? I mean, like if you're going to get a veggie burger, is that really where you're going to go? I don't even get regular burgers from there. But he picks me up, and he's Dave, and I love him, and I trust his sensibilities. And he's not, incidentally, a vegetarian, but he does eat super healthy. And so I just thought, all right, I guess I'm going to get a veggie burger, you know, like, I'll give it a try, you know, but don't tell me what's in it. You know, it's like when you go on a mission trip, and the missionary comes out with the mystery stew, you don't want to know what the meat is. You just, it's whatever it is, that's what you're eating. And so we get to Green Bar and, and they have these different veggie burgers and it actually has a description underneath each one, like this is what's in it. I'm thinking, no, 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 I'm not going to read that. I just said, what's your most popular one? They said, well, it's this one. I said, I'll have one of those. Okay, it was fantastic. It's really good. I've had several. I've had to convince people to go with me. Come to Green Bar which is really the only place I've ever had a veggie burger. But nevertheless, and you're going to like this, super good. But here's what it isn't. It's not filet mignon. It's just not. It's not even in the same universe as filet mignon. All right, so here's the thing. Google is wrong, so in case you were starting to panic, the Bible does not say that you can't eat meat. You can eat whatever you want. You're free to eat in Jesus. You should be wise and take care of your body and all of those kinds of things. So that's a separate conversation. But the one in the middle, it does say 
You just heard it coming right out of the mouth of Jesus. Yeah, the Bible says not to judge. And the question is, what does that mean? Because here's what it can't mean. It can't mean don't ever make judgments about other people. Don't ever evaluate anyone else. Don't ever make an appraisal of anyone else or of their conduct or whatever. It doesn't mean that. It cannot possibly mean that. Why? Because Jesus does that all the time. Good grief. He does it in the same passage in which he says do not judge. He says do not judge in verse 1. In verse 5, he's like, you hypocrite. I don't know, but I think that's judgy. (laughs) Don't you? He gets to verse 6. He's like, do not judge. But wait a minute. In a very limited way, in regard to a very limited and super important topic that we'll end with, really all of us, when you come to understand what he's saying, at some point in our life, behave like ravenous dogs. You behave like pigs that just care only about our stomachs. Sounds judgy. So anyway, it can't mean that. And it also can't mean... Okay, you know what? Don't ever say anything about what the Bible says is truth. It, it can't mean that because Jesus did that too. I'll just give you one example. John 7, verse 7. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. He's speaking about the world. He says, the world hates me. Well, okay, but why does the world hate you, Jesus? Well, because I testify about it. And look, Jesus comes as God. He's not just telling us the truth every time that he speaks. He is the truth personified himself. So he's going to give testimony. It's going to be truthful testimony. And it must be uncomfortable because the world hates him for it. He says, the world hates me because I testify about it. All right, well, then what's your testimony? That its works are evil. That's true, isn't it? We have the counseling industry to deal with people who love cats, but we've got the news industry, and what do they market? What do they deal with? What do they roll before us on a a 24-hour-a-day schedule that that is designed to suck us into the mania of, of the intrigue and of the soap opera and of the evil that is happening all over the world and in our backyard and everywhere else? They're designed to suck us into this thing that is terrible for our soul and for our minds and for the whole of our beings because they make us think that if we shut the dumb thing off for 30 seconds, the world's going to end and somehow we're going to miss it. Market's evil. And guys, there's so much material. There's material out there. Okay, if we're honest, there's material in here. I'm not saying you're an evil person. I'm not. I'm just saying we're all selfish at times and prideful at times and self-centered at times and dishonest at times. Like for all the good things that we do and all of our good intentions, the world's not just broken out there. It's broken in here, and the reason that it's broken out there is because it's broken in here and the fact that we have police departments and armies and the CIA and the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security should be enough to convince us that something's wrong. And Jesus is saying, well, let me tell you what's wrong. I testify about the world, okay, that its works are evil. That's right, but it's kind of judgy. In fact, not kind of. And yet here in his Sermon on the Mount, he he begins the passage that we're looking at today in Matthew 7, verse 1, and Matt read it. He says, judge not, and then he's got this little tagline that we need to pay attention to, that you not be judged. All right, so then what does that mean? Because that's the question of the day. And I think that if I could just sum up what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, look, when you do evaluate someone, when you do make an appraisal of someone's behavior or conduct or attitude or whatever the case it might be, 
And you do that according to the very real standards that do exist in the Bible, which comes to us and tells us the truth about things like right and wrong and good and evil and wisdom and foolishness and moral and immoral and all of these different topics. Do it as someone who is intimately in touch with the fact, like like viscerally in touch with the fact that you yourself also fall just as far short of all of those same standards as the person you're appraising. Because then you won't do it pridefully. Then you won't do it in a self-serving, I'm going to put you down to raise me up kind of way. You're, you're doing it in humility and in compassion and in love and with a heart to help. And if you don't do that, Jesus says, well, then you open yourself up to the judgment of God. Listen to what he says in verse 2 because he just amplifies it. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce on others is the point, you will be judged. And by who? I mean, the obvious, the referent is obvious here. It's God. You will be judged by God. And with the measure that you use towards others, okay, well, then it will be measured to you by God, which is super intimidating and a little anti-gospel sounding, right? I mean, you hear that and you think to yourself, okay, but wait a minute. I thought that if Jesus was my Savior... He's taken the judgment of God for me. Like, that's the cross, isn't it, Tom? Jesus, God made man, entered into this world, clothed himself in all of my flaws and failures, and then took the judgment I rightly deserve that I might be free of it and forgiven and made clean and brought into the family of God. Yes, that is the gospel. But what Jesus is saying here is, look, if that's really true for you, if I really have your heart, you're just not going to do this. It doesn't mean you won't do it every once in a while. It means you're not going to be a chronically judgmental person. But instead, every once in a while, when it rises up within you and you make that judgmental comment, the Spirit of God is going to rise up within you and go, hey, you know what that is? That's evil. (laughs) And you need to repent of that. You need to repent to the Lord. You need to repent to this person, perhaps. He's saying if the gospel has actually laid hold of your heart, okay, it's not going to produce the fruit of pride. It's not going to produce the fruit of self-righteousness. It's not going to produce the fruit of a haughty, of a critical spirit, of of somebody who feels superior to somebody else and and loves to put other people down because it, it makes them feel better about themselves and masks their insecurities. But instead, it will produce the fruit of humility and and compassion, understanding of love, of helpfulness, of kindness and goodness and gentleness. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience. I mean, that's what it produces. I know it's been a while, but if you go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, do you remember the first words? Because here's what they weren't. They weren't, blessed are the prideful in spirit. (laughs) They were blessed are the poor in spirit. And you say, well then... Who are they? They are those who, on the one hand, understand their own brokenness and fallenness, and who, on the other hand, understand just how great a cost God had and in love did pay at the expense of the life of Christ to pay and to cover over all of that fallenness and all of that brokenness and all of the ways that it's manifested itself throughout our lives, and who then, as a result, approach their fellow man, not pridefully, but in humility and in compassion and in love. Even people who are maybe broken in different ways and who are broken in different places than us, but who, because we're in touch with our own brokenness and with the love of God for us in Christ, we understand, okay, well, they're no more or less broken 
They're just broken differently. And, and so Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log? And I love the next word. That is what? That is, not that might be, in your own eye. It's curious, isn't it? That little word is. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Which, if you think about it, ought to be a lot more obvious to you and a lot easier to see, in other words, if you've got a log in your eye than a speck in somebody else's eye. He says, why do you notice this, but not that? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there actually is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, which incidentally is exactly what we are to do for one another. Jesus isn't saying ignore the speck in your brother's eye. He's saying, look, when you come to your brother to help him get the speck out of his eye that he either cannot see or can't get out on his own, okay, do it as somebody who has first dealt with the log in your own eye. Do it as somebody who comes from the humility generated through repentance and faith and forgiveness. Then you'll see clearly. Then you'll come with the right attitude. Your heart then will be to lift your brother up, for you've been lifted up. It will be to love him, to be compassionate. So having spent five verses telling us not to be pridefully judgmental, Jesus shifts gears a little bit. And he spends one verse telling us to be properly judgmental, at least when it comes to the narrow topic of the gospel itself, which in the gospel of Matthew, here in this text, and also in Matthew 13, he refers to as a pearl. Talks about pearls. It's interesting. When you jump ahead to Matthew 13, verse 45, listen to what he says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Okay, why does he compare the gospel to a pearl? Because the pearl in the ancient world was known and regarded widely as the single most valuable object in the entirety of the world. So it's a great comparison. He's saying, hey, this is the most valuable object ever. And notice the merchant. Here's what he's not describing with this merchant. He's not describing, and I want to be careful how I say this, a mere jewelry store owner. Now, listen, if you own a jewelry store, that's awesome, and I don't mean to depreciate the value of that. But what he's describing here is one of these rare few merchants in the ancient world who moved and operated and worked within the pearl shakedoms of Persia and then supplied jewelry stores in an entire geographic region of the world with pearls. There's a difference. This guy spent his whole life building a pearl empire. And he's invited in this image into the tent of a pearl shake. And after the endless greetings and ritual formalities, he's invited into the private quarters of that tent, in the rear of the tent. And in the rear of the tent, by the light of a lamp, he sees that this pearl shake pull out a silk purse, and then he reaches into this silk purse, and from it he withdraws this giant pearl of perfect proportions. And when the merchant, who again has been searching all his life, sees it, his heart starts pounding wildly like because he realizes he is finally looking at the very thing that the whole of his life he's been looking for and he knows that it's valuable. The question is how valuable is it and we don't have to wait. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value waited a couple years and you know then when he got around to it cashed in some stock or whatever and then he bought it. No. He went immediately, is the idea, and sold all that he had, and he bought it. 
Why? Because the pearl represents the gospel, or if I can just personify it, the pearl represents Christ. It represents all that he is. It represents all that he's done. It represents all that he will yet and for forever do. It represents all that he offers freely to me and to you at the expense of his own infinitely valuable. That's why he's the pearl life. It's remarkable. And yet the reality is, and it's true for all of us, like there was a time in our lives where we didn't see that and we didn't get that and we didn't appreciate that and we didn't want that. And it's true for other people in our lives too, people in here, people out there. I think what we tend to do is we tend to say, okay, Jesus over here, option A for life's greatest treasure. Option B, satisfaction of my appetites. Satisfaction of my appetite to live a life that means something. Satisfaction of my appetite to feel like, you know what, I actually have some value. Satisfaction of my appetite for purpose, for love, that's a biggie. And what we tend to do is over here we're going, I need to get these appetites filled. My appetites are in fact my God, and Jesus is more or less an impediment to this. Because so, for example, we're going, I need love, and I have this appetite for love, and I'm trying to fill my appetite for love, and all Jesus is doing over here is going, well, you can't fulfill it this way, and don't do that, and don't go there, and don't say this, and don't be a part of... Meanwhile, he's over here actually going, hey, can I tell you something about love as like the author of love and the creator of you? You're not going to find it in this person and that person in this way and in that way. It's not going to happen. It cannot possibly happen. It's unfair to look for it there, unfair to you and unfair to the people to whom you're trying to draw it all out. There's not enough in them. Why? Because your appetite for love is insatiable. It is infinite. You've been made to only be satisfied by one who can pour infinitely into your heart. He's going, look, I can save you a lot of time and a lot of hurt, a lot of regret. Just let me love you. It's ironic. He's the competition to the satisfaction to our appetites in our minds when in fact... He and he alone is the answer to all of the satisfactions of all of our appetites. So he spends five verses saying, okay, don't be pridefully judgmental. But then he gets to this one verse, and he talks about the pearl of the gospel, which is worth everything. And in verse 6, he says, do not give it to dogs. And this isn't a picture of, you know, a pair of Maltese or something. This is This is a wild band of ravenous dogs that are... They want to do what? Fill their bellies, man. You know, they go in the trash heaps and the garbage cans and they attack the vulnerable. They care only about their appetites. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Holy means separate, different from absolutely everything else. Jesus over here, everything else over here. And do not, he says, throw your pearls, so there it is, before pigs, who by their very nature are interested only in their bellies. Lest they trample the pearls underfoot and turn to attack you for giving them something that they don't understand, that they don't yet want, and they don't yet see the value of. And yet, what is the most valuable thing in the world? It's remarkable. I think what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to the gospel, you need to be prayerfully discerning with regard to the people in your life 
in terms of where they're at and their readiness to receive the gospel. And you might find that there are people in your life right now, and maybe you've known this for a long time, and maybe the Spirit's been going, come on, let's do this already, you know, who are totally ready to have a very frank and humble, not prideful, not self-righteous, but out of your own brokenness and out of your own, like, forgiveness and salvation and joy and relief of that conversation about who Jesus is. And you just need to do it. Or... Maybe you just need to invite them to Alpha. Maybe it's somebody who has all kinds of of hurt in relation to this, all kinds of skepticism in relation to this, all kinds of doubt in relation to this, all kinds of fear and concerns in relation to this, all kinds of different ideas and different beliefs in relation to this. That's what Alpha's for. It is an intentionally non-judgmental environment where you can just bring all of that stuff and you're not going to be pushed and you're not going to be prodded and you're not going to be pressured and you're not going to be argued with. But you're going to be given the opportunity to explore the big issues of life from a Christian perspective, to be sure, but in, a, in an environment that respects your perspective and just lets the Holy Spirit does do what He can do, what He alone can do. And since the Spirit moves in response to prayer as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, I want to just give you some questions to reflect on, okay? And then we're going to pray about them. So as Matt said, these are questions for us, not for somebody else. It's not the moment to go, man, I wish so-and-so was here because that's a good question for... (laughs) No, 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 don't do that. It's our nature, isn't it? Oh, man, I got to send the link to this, to this person because that question... Okay, well, send them the link, but no. Me, Me and God, you and God. Do you have an accurate appraisal of yourself and of your own brokenness and fallenness? In other words, have you looked at yourself... Not in the mirror of our culture. There's nothing to be learned there. It gives no reflection at all. It doesn't say, oh, hey, you look good or you look bad, or maybe it just always says you look good, no matter whether or not you look bad. There's no value to that. The mirror is the mirror of God's own holiness. It is the mirror of God's own beauty. It is the mirror of God's own perfections. It is the mirror of staring at the face of God himself. And we have the face of God in the person of Jesus. And here's what happens when you look into that mirror. Initially, it's kind of traumatic because you go, there's some flaws and failures in here. Like, I turn the news on and I think it's all those people, you know. And maybe I haven't done something worthy of making the news, but it lives in me too. So... It makes you poor in spirit, but it makes you rich in Jesus because it leaves you with nowhere to run but to him. And that's what he wants. And he welcomes you. And he makes full payment for it all. Secondly, do you have an accurate appraisal of the pearl of the gospel? Like as you size it all up, what's the most valuable thing in all of your life to you? Is it really Jesus and all that he is and all that he has and all that he's done and will yet do, all that he offers freely? Or is it something else that's never going to satisfy? Because again, he's going, hey, let me love you. Let me give you meaning. Let me give you purpose. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Question three, what person or people group do you need to stop judging? Like, is there like this people group out there that you're kind of like, well, unless we can agree on this, we cannot be friends. They're called Republicans or Democrats, aren't they? They love the president. They don't love the president. 
I mean, seriously, just it's okay. They live this way or not. There's a love that needs to exceed that, excel that, surpass that, swallow that up. What person or people group do you need to stop stop judging so that you might love? Who do you need to repent to? Like maybe there's a person and you, you know, they've been judged. You know it, they know it. The Lord knows it. He stands willing to forgive you of it, but you need to confess that perhaps. What do you need to repent of? Like what's the log in your eye? Because Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what, there might be one. He said, no, 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 there is. Look for it. Who do you need to humbly help with the speck in their eye? That's a difficult thing to do, like super awkward. You know, hey, I kind of want to talk to you about the love. Love speaks in truth. Love motivates those kinds of conversations. And then lastly, who do you need to tell about Jesus or maybe invite to Alpha? Who do you need to do that with? Because I find that what the Spirit of the Lord does for me is He just keeps bringing something back up with me until finally I go, okay, okay, I got it. You know, like. So probably you know who that is. All right, let's pray together, guys. And if you'd like prayer, we're going to have our prayer team go to either side of the room and, and feel free to slip out and go pray with them. God, I pray that you would give us faith to have Um, the ability to see ourselves and to see ourselves as you see us, as deeply flawed people on the one hand, but as even more deeply loved people on the other hand. And I just want to take a minute and let you right where you're at, you know, just think about your flaws for a second and then think about the even greater love of Jesus and just praise him for that. Say thank you for that. Let that and not the madness of life, let that and not guilt and shame, let that fill you up for a moment. And tell him how wonderful he is for that. Lord, we come to you knowing that we are deeply loved, but knowing that our hearts are idle factories, man. <laughs> we just, we manufacture them left and right. We don't even know it at times. And uh, So we pray that in this moment, your spirit would just give us clarity on who and what we're loving. And, and just give us a moment to reorder the priority of our loves. Lord, if you are not on the throne of our heart in this moment, I pray, God, that you would give us faith by which to to get whatever it is. It may be me, it it could be my stuff, it could be whatever. Just get that off. Then I might give my heart rightly to the one to whom it belongs and the only one who can satisfy. And so just take a moment and and confess those things and, and pray to the Lord and ask him to occupy you, to fill you up with his spirit. Lord, we come to you as well as those who will come to your table when we come to confess um, 
the log in our eye and to confess the great love of a Savior who suffered and died that it might be removed. We confess the need for its removal. We we ask you, Lord, to to give us power and strength by which to turn from it, not to say we're sorry because we feel bad and then go back to it, but but maybe even to reach out to a brother or to a sister and to say, look, can you help me get this thing out of my eye? Because what I've discovered is I, I, I need community. I need the help of the Spirit and I need the help of people in my life under whose careful hand I can sit and who can help me remove it. Pray to the Lord about the log in your eye. Confess it for what it is. Ask for His Spirit and look for a friend. And I pray as well that you would make us friends who love enough to properly being sized in light of the gospel. So therefore then in humility and compassion and love to go to the people we love who we see struggling with something obvious that maybe we've been through or maybe not, but you know, we know our stuff and your kind of your power for deliverance and to seek that power for deliverance intentionally with them. Lord, with tears to ask if you can help, if we can help. I want you to take a minute and pray for that person, whoever that person may be in your life. And then pray as well for someone that you need to to tell about Jesus. It's like if we were all starving and then we found this limitless amount of food. (laughs) I mean, we'd we'd let other people know, right? Because it's limitless. It's better than that. So take a moment to pray for those people in your life. The verse that we looked at today, judge not that you be not judged, is maybe the most popular verse in the world, but I'm going to read to you the one that used to be, and then I'm going to read you the one after it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, and don't miss it, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Amen. I think that prepares us well to come to this table. And any time we're coming in, please take advantage of the people around the room to pray with. Like you you might have a burden, you know, the log in your eye, and you're like, I need help. Or there's somebody you want prayer for, whatever. Just, Just grab that today. But I think that prepares us well. This is a table of forgiveness. It holds before us the emblems of our forgiveness. A very real Jesus suffered a very physical, real death and was raised physically as well to defeat our sin, our our failures and flaws. We find those emblems here at this table. That makes this the greatest feast ever. 
makes it the most valuable meal in the world. It's the emblems of the great treasure who is Christ. It's a table of reconciliation. It's a table of unity. It's a table that requires us to deal with our issues with one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus before we come to this table. And so, like, if this message is brought up to you, somebody that eh, you've been judging, and maybe they know it and you know it, or maybe they don't even know it, and you still need to go talk to them, then don't come to the table today. Let that provoke you to do that so that the next time you can. But it's also a table for the forgiven. And here's what that means. It means that if you're going to come to this table authentically, you come to it already having received this Jesus whose emblems you'll take up in your hand and crunch in your teeth and whatnot. You've already received him in your heart. You've said, Lord, I don't know. I know that I, I fail at times to rightly treasure you, but I've repented of that. You're on the throne of my heart. You are life's greatest treasure. And I trust my day my weeks, my months, and my eternity to your work for me in your life and in your death and in your burial and in your resurrection. God, fill me with your spirit. I want you. I'm a forgiven person. Okay, then come on forward. And if that is not yet you, we are super excited you are here and we want to share that Jesus with you. But the scriptures say, don't come to the table unless you can do it authentically. That is to say, saying that. And if you can't, man, we've got these prayer team members. We've got pastors up here, just people in the church. Come talk to us about it, either during the service or after. And we'd love to, to just help you work that thing through. All right? But otherwise, the, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, we thank you for this table. We thank you, Lord, for the the Son of God who is Jesus, who gave his life that it might be offered freely to us. We thank you for the Spirit of the Lord by whom we meet with that Savior here at this table. And God, we pray that we will meet with that Savior here at this table and know and experience the fullness of his joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.